It has been said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. If you've been around children, which I know most of you have, um, you know that children imitate, right? They imitate what their parents do. They imitate what other children do. And sometimes that can be a problem, right? When your kids start going to school and they start coming home with all kinds of stuff and you're like, where'd you pick that up from, right? And, uh, and that's why as parents, we're, we're kidding ourselves if we, if we tell our kids, do what I say and not what I do, right? Who are we kidding there? Because actually, according to child development specialists, experts, the primary, the number one way that children learn and develop is through observation and imitation, right? And, uh, and it begins almost immediately from the time a child is born. They observe facial expressions. That's the first thing they begin to imitate. Facial expressions. They observe and they imitate. And then that continues, especially around age one. Uh, one year old, they, they imitate a lot. Children do. They, they mimic almost everything that they see their parents do, that they see other people doing. I remember when my son was, was about two years old, uh, you know, from the time that he was small, Rosemary used to cook and he would sit next to her on the floor and he would copy her, right? Whatever she was doing, if she was stirring, he'd stir. If she was mixing, you know, he, would, he wanted to do the same thing that she was doing. So one morning, we, we lived in this house in, in Hungary and uh, our, all our bedrooms were upstairs and our kitchen was downstairs. And, uh, you know, usually our son would come in in the morning when he woke up and, you know, wake us up. But one morning we woke up, we didn't know where our son was so we walk out in the hall and we hear this noise coming from downstairs and we hear this little voice saying uh-oh 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 you know so uh so we go downstairs to see what's going on and our son had uh, Nate he had gotten up before us and instead of coming into our room he had gone downstairs and he was gonna make breakfast because that's what mom does right so he's imitating mom so he goes down the bre- in the kitchen he's gonna cook breakfast um, so he had opened up the fridge and he was pulling all the stuff out that you make breakfast with right so he had dumped the milk all over the floor he had dumped eggs you know he tried to get the eggs out they all fell on the floor and of course what would mom do Uh, if you know my wife you know that for her cleaning is kind of like her favorite hobby so anyway my my yeah it's kind of nice to be married to her actually so uh so anyway uh my son had this mop right he had gotten out the mop and he was trying to mop up the floor just like mom and you know of course it's just spreading everything around so anyway Imitation, though, it's not just for babies, it's not just for toddlers, it continues on as children get older. Uh, They imitate the way that their parents talk. They pick up their mannerisms. On Wednesday, Rosemary took our kids over. There was a big sale at the fairgrounds of her kids' stuff, and they were looking at DVDs, and the kids kept asking Rosemary, you know, Mom, are you sure these DVDs are appropriate for kids our age? You know what I mean? Right? And they use this word all the time, actually. It's a little bit bizarre. They walk around telling each other, hey, I think that's a little bit inappropriate. You know what I mean? You, know, you need to behave appropriately. So they imitate us. And, you know, in a way, it's kind of weird. It's kind of like having this, like, little midget who walks around and pretends to be you, which is kind of bizarre, you know. But that is healthy, right? Because it's how they grow. It's how they mature. It's how they learn. And it is healthy for them to observe and imitate. But it's also why parenting is a challenge right because it's not just what you say it's not just what you tell them to do it actually matters who you are right in every situation uh, because your children are watching you whether you like it or not and they will imitate you and when you get to be a teenager right we all think you know like man I'm so glad that I'm not like my parents right oh man 
whew, I really dodged the bullet on that one. I'm not like them at all, right? But then what happens is you get older and then you realize, oh no, I am turning into my parents, right? I am just like them. And you catch yourself saying things that they say and doing things that they do, and it almost catches you by surprise, right? And, but the reason is because observation and imitation, these are the main ways that we learn, that we grow, that we develop. And here in Ephesians chapter 5, this is what we read in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God as beloved children. As beloved children, imitate God. Just as children imitate their parents, so too let us as children of God be imitators of God, right? Just as children observe what their parents do and then imitate it, let us be those who observe our Lord, who get to know him and then imitate what he does. We live out who he is. Rather than comparing ourselves to other people, right, and letting that be the standard, for us let this be the standard knowing the Lord and doing what he does imitating God and who is God right just a few things we're going to talk about more but God is holy and he says be holy like I'm holy God is loving he's kind he's generous he is a God who gives he is a God who forgives he is a God who blesses how do we imitate that how do we live that out? That's the issue we're talking about today. But notice this. It doesn't just tell us what to do. And this is really important as we're going through Ephesians. It doesn't just tell us what to do. It tells us why, right? And the why is always pointing us back to God, right? It says what to do is imitate God. But why is this? Because you are a beloved child of God. God's word says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. So here's the point. Because you have become a child of God in Jesus Christ, because you are a beloved child, therefore, this is how we should live. This is how that should motivate us. This is how that should change our lives. We should become imitators of God. So uh, right now in our, in our Bible study through the summer, we're currently going through a series, obviously studying through Ephesians, and we're getting to the tail end of that. In just a few weeks, we're going to begin our next series, and uh, I'm excited about that. I'm excited about where God is taking our church. Um, but this study has been a verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Ephesians. And here in Ephesians 5, in the section we're looking at today, this is a very practical section about what it means to live the Christian life. What does it look like to live as a Christian? And actually, this whole second half of Ephesians is about that topic. What, ver what chapter 5 tells us, this first verse of chapter 5 that I read, be imitators of God as beloved children, that really sums up in a nutshell the essence of what it means to live the Christian life, right? Be an imitator of God because you have become a child of God. Emulate the person of God. Live out the life of God that has been given to you in Christ. Emulate God. Imitate him as you go about your days and your weeks. Here in this section, there are three specific ways mentioned that we are told to imitate God. So this is kind of an outline for you note takers. Three specific ways we're told to imitate God. Number one, walk in love. Number two, walk in light. And number three, walk in wisdom. So that's what we'll be looking at today. Walk in love, walk in light, and walk in wisdom. So first half of the book of Ephesians, which is chapters 1, 2, and 3, they are all about the gospel. They are all about what happens to us when we receive Christ by faith. What happens? 
What do we become, right? What do we receive when we receive Christ by faith? And then here in the second half of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, it's all about how we should live in light of who we have become. How we should live in light of who we have become in Christ. And that order is so important. First, what we receive when we receive Christ. Knowing the gospel, knowing who we are in him. And then second, after that, then we talk about how we should live in light of who we have become. Because the heart of Christianity is the person and work of Jesus Christ. The essence of Christianity is not what we must do for God, but it is what Christ has done for us. And that's why we take communion every week here at Whitefields. I hope you know that. We take communion every week because we want to stay focused. We want to stay dialed in on what God has done for us in Christ. We want to keep that in a prominent place in our hearts, in our minds, in our worship. Everything we do for God, it is in response to what Christ has done for us. So here in Ephesians, when we talk about practical Christian living, it's so important that we understand it this way. It means this. How do we live? What does it mean to live in accord with who we are? What does it mean to live in accord with who we are in Christ? Because here's what I would say. And now part of this is that I went to Vitamin Cottage this week. But here's the thing I was thinking. Uh, Christianity is not just a vitamin supplement that you take, that, that you take to give you a little boost to help you live a better form of the life you're already living, right? It isn't a vitamin supplement that you take into your life to help you live a better form of the life that you're already living. Here's what Christianity is. It is a sweeping revolution. It is a sweeping revolution that comes into your life and affects every single part, every part of it. And, and that's why every week what we've been asking as we go through Ephesians is this. Who are you in Christ and how should you live therefore? And here's the answer we see in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, which we're studying today. Here's what God's word tells us. Who are you in Christ? You are a child of God. And number two, how should you live therefore? Be an imitator of God. Be an imitator of God. So let's talk about each of these, these three ways in which we are told that we should imitate God. Number one, and we're going to kind of take these proportionally. So number one, walk in love. Verse two says this, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in love. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Notice once again, whenever we are told how to live, it always points us back to the gospel as the reason why. The reason you should love others, because Christ first loved you, because he stepped out for you, because he gave himself for you. Jesus said this to his disciples, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now that word as is so key, right? He's saying love other people in the same way that I have loved you. And, and that phrase, love other people in the same way that I have loved you, I find that so challenging. That grabs my heart, that makes me think, because I, I would encourage you to consider that. Consider that phrase. Consider the love of Jesus. How has he loved you? And I would encourage you to find ways to love other people in the ways that he has loved you. We're going to move on. Like I said, we're taking these proportionally. Next one, walk in light, verses 3 through 14. We'll read the first part of that here. Walk in light. 
Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Again, it's important to understand what's being said here. Uh, The point is, again, who you are determines how you should live. Who you are determines how you should live. And to imitate God is, here's what this tells us, if you want to be an imitator of God, that means to live a holy life, a life set apart from sin. God even says a multitude of times throughout the Bible, multiple times he says, you shall be holy for I am holy. So because we're children of God, because it tells us here that we have become children of light, we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, Therefore, how should we live? It tells us right here, we should have nothing to do with any form of sin. You know, one of the primary ways that we can imitate God is by turning away from sin and pursuing holiness and righteousness and truth. That's what it means to walk in the light. But you know what's interesting about this list is this list where he mentions, he mentions three specific types of sin. Um, I, it's, it tells us some very important things about sin. And, and here are the three things that it tells us regarding the nature of sin. Number one, there are different kinds of sin. Number one, there's different kinds of sin. Number two, all sin is culpable, right? All sin is culpable. And number three, everyone has sinned. Now notice what's listened, listed here. First it lists sexual immorality. Just so that you know, in the Greek, this is the word porneo from which we get the term pornography, right? Uh, pornography literally means images of sexual immorality, right? So, so I would say that qualifies here. So sexual immorality, pornography, all impurity and covetousness, which it tells us covetousness is the same as idolatry. So here's what's interesting about this list. It literally covers every kind of sin, okay? Every kind of sin. It's completely comprehensive. It covers everything from obvious sin, right? That's, that's what we have here when we talk about immoral activity, obvious sin, to sin in general when it says all kinds of impurity, right? That's anything that makes you impure. That's sin in general. And it also covers sin of the heart and the mind, right? Which is covetousness and idolatry. These are things that happen in your thought life, in your heart. Because sin isn't just what we do outwardly, right? It can also be things that happen in our hearts and our minds. So in other words, this list covers everything. And then it says this amazing and, you know, it should be very heavy phrase. It says this, anyone who does these things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. I can't soften that. That's supposed to be heavy. Anyone who does these things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. It says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So who does this cover? Everybody. It covers everybody. And that is exactly the point. Everybody has broken the law of God. Everybody has sinned. Nobody deserves 
to go to heaven. Nobody deserves grace. Everybody deserves the wrath of God because of disobedience. You know, some people will read this list and they'll think it's just beating up on people who have been immoral, right? Like it's just like railing on people who have made mistakes and failures in areas of immorality. If you've looked at pornography, if you've been active sexually outside of marriage, then you've fallen from grace and you're going to hell and there's no hope for you, right? That's what some people get out of this, but that's not what's being said. That's not the point of this. As a matter of fact, the very point of this section is to say this. Whether you have sinned big time, outwardly, obviously, no doubt about it type of sin, or whether you've sinned only inwardly in the motives of your heart, in the thoughts that you've had towards other people, Here's the point. All of us have broken the law of God in some way. Apart from Jesus Christ, we're all in the same boat. And we're all in desperate need of the gospel. We're all in desperate need of the grace of God, which is available to us through Jesus Christ. The Westminster Confession puts it this way. Just as there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation on those who truly repent. I'll say that again because really this is, this is what's being said here and this is the gospel. Just as there is no sin so small that it deserves, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great it can bring damnation on those who truly repent. And that's the point of the gospel, that sin is that pervasive, sin is that terrible, but grace is that available and it is that powerful. Sin is that pervasive, that terrible, but grace is that available and it is that powerful. The good news of the gospel is this. At one time you were in darkness, but you, in the Lord, you have become light. In the Lord you have become children of light. And that phrase that it says there, you have become light in the Lord, that's the key. In the Lord. Apart from Jesus, you are in darkness, but in Christ you are light. Apart from Jesus, Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us we are children of wrath, but in Christ we are children of light. Imagine it this way. Imagine a girl. And this girl, she's poor and she's plain. She doesn't have a penny to her name. She's not very attractive. But by some wonderful turn of events, the great prince falls in love with her and he puts his love upon her and he takes her to be his own, takes her to be his wife. And at the great wedding ceremony, he, he comes to her, he brings her to himself, and he makes her his own, and he makes vows of faithfulness to her. And you know what happens at that wedding ceremony? They're united. They're joined together. They become one. And what that means is this, that in the minute before they take those vows, this woman is penniless. She has nothing. But immediately, in an instant, she becomes exceedingly rich. She has money, right? She's got money to burn. And not only that, but she's adorned. She's decked out in the most beautiful garments and jewels and, and decorations or whatever that money can buy. And although in herself she is plain and she is poor, in the love of her beloved, she is a vision of loveliness. Although in herself she is poor and she is plain, now in the love of her prince she is light and she is beautiful and she is rich. That is a dim hint of what it means to be a Christian. 
Or consider this image of adoption because we're told here this is who we are in Christ. We have become children of God. So consider this image of adoption. It says, because you are a beloved child of God, therefore imitate God. Walk in love. Walk in light. And what's interesting is that we read in Ephesians chapter 1 that the way that we become children of God is through adoption. That's interesting, right? In other words, naturally, we're told that we're children of wrath, but God adopts us into his family. And that's how we become children of God. That's the gospel. And really, adoption is a wonderful picture of what it means to be brought into God's family. It's a wonderful picture of what the gospel is. Some of you, most of you probably know this. Some of you may not, that uh, we adopted one of our kids. And, uh, and as a family, we love adoption. And as Christians, we love adoption. We think it's a beautiful thing. It's something that reflects the love of God. It reflects God's care for us. It's a way that we can imitate God by adopting children just as God adopted us as his children. Just a little historical background to give you some perspective here. This letter was written in the first century AD to people who lived in the Roman Empire. And Paul says this to them. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is that God adopted you and made you his beloved children. Now at that time in the Roman Empire, it was very common for children to be born and then simply discarded. Especially in the case of um, um, poor families or in situations of immorality. You know, as you know, they didn't have contraception in the way that we have it nowadays. So there were a lot of unwanted pregnancies. So if a child was unwanted, if a baby was born with a disability, then they would oftentimes be abandoned. They would be, you know, just placed on the road. They would be placed in the forest, things like this. And many of these children would die. And the ones who didn't die, they would end up as street children. Kind of like if you've ever read Oliver Twist, right, with these bands of street children running around. Or if you've ever been to a place like Romania, where there is a population of children, abandoned children who live on the street. Uh, That exists even today in many places around the world. And so something that happened at that time, and and honestly, which still happens today in places like this, is that people would go and they would round up these children, these orphan street children, and they would exploit them. Terrible thing. You know, they they would subject them to slavery or or prostitution or or terrible things, right? This This kind of stuff still goes on in the world today. Uh, I've seen it firsthand in Romania and I've seen it in Hungary with gypsies. Uh, But what happened in that first century AD in the Roman Empire is that as Christianity spread, you know, into the second century, all this, what would happen is that the Christians started adopting these abandoned children in droves and they became famous for it. Things are written by Roman, um, you know, government leaders about this. We still have these documents about how Christians would adopt children. They, they would round up these discarded babies, these street children, and they would take them in. They would feed them and they would adopt them. And, and I'm, I've, uh, I've talked to a lot of people about adoption over the years just because uh, of our own adoption that we did. And, and one of the questions that you most often get about adoption is this. Isn't it hard to love someone who isn't your flesh and blood? Isn't it hard to love someone who isn't your flesh and blood? And, and the answer I always give is this. Well, not necessarily. I guess it depends on why you adopt, how you approach adoption, right? Because a lot of people who adopt, the way they approach it is that it's primarily something which they are doing for themselves, 
right? If you, uh, if you don't have children for, uh, you know, whatever reason, uh, and they will adopt a child to, f- child to fulfill a need that they have. Now, in that case, I would say that, yes, it probably is more difficult to accept the child into your family because you might not feel that they are really yours. But if you approach adoption from a different perspective, and I would say this, if you don't adopt primarily for yourself, but if you adopt for the sake of the child who has no family, right, who has no one to love them and care for them, then it's not hard at all to, to bring them into your family and make them yours. And because, in other words, what you're doing is that you are giving yourself to them, right? They need a dad. They need a mom. They need a home. They need someone to care for them and nurture them and instruct them. And if it's about you giving yourself to that child, then it's not at all hard to love them and bring them into your family and love them as your own. But uh, Jesus was adopted. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever consider that? That essentially Jesus, right, he came into this earth, he came into the world without an earthly father. And this wonderful man named Joseph said, you know what? I am going to adopt Mary's son and I'm going to raise him as my own and I'm going to be his dad. Jesus was adopted. And the picture we have of God is that he is a father who has adopted us into his family and made us children with full rights. You know what's interesting about adoption as a metaphor for the gospel? Here's one way. The difference between an adopted child and a natural child is that in an adoption, the parents choose that child, right? They meet them and they say, I want you. And that's so huge, right? That you say, I want you. I didn't just wind up with you. Not to diminish, of course, natural children. I have natural children too, of course. You know, but the whole point is that that's a very special and unique thing. That you meet a child and you say, I want you. That's huge. And that's what the gospel is. That God knows you. And in spite of that, he said, I want you. I love you. And I want to bring you into my family. I want to make you my own. You know, um, I I put it this way. Most people believe that they can be either fully known or fully loved, but not both. We we all tend, I think, to think that if, if people knew everything about us, every thought we have, every flaw we have, all the things that we try to cover up, if they knew everything about us, well, then they wouldn't fully love us. But here's the gospel, that God knows you fully. He knows you more than you even know yourself, Right? He knows every secret of your heart. He knows every secret of your life that nobody else knows. And yet, he loves you. And he doesn't just love you in a pandering way. He loves you fully. That's the gospel. The other thing about adoption is this. Think about this. When a child is adopted, they get a new identity. When we completed the adoption that we went through, our son was issued a new birth certificate. His old one was filed away and they said that it was it was under like certain levels of security that nobody could ever reach it that was the whole point it was done away with the old identity and the new identity was given a new birth certificate he received a new name and with that came a new legal status he became an heir right he wasn't just partially a child he's a full heir he got a new identity and a new name and that's exactly what happens when we become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ we are adopted by God into his family and he places a new name upon us and we get a new identity a new status he says by nature you were children of darkness but now you are light 
In God, you've been adopted. You've been made a child of God. You are now light in Christ. And here's the point. Because of who we are, walk according to that new identity. Because of who you have become, because of that new name that you bear, walk according to that new identity. Actively move in a new direction. And here's the thing it says next in verse 10. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, Christianity isn't just about what you don't do. It's not just about turning away from sin. Christianity is about living to please the Lord. And it says you got to discern. You need some discernment sometimes because you and I face situations that the Bible says nothing about, right? Because Jesus didn't have the internets, right? He didn't have the world wide webs and, and his phone was super slow, right? It was so slow that he said, you know what, I'm just going to walk like 200 miles to go talk to these people because this connection's terrible, right? Jesus didn't have Netflix. He didn't have to discern how do I please God in a world that has Netflix. You and I face situations where we can't just look up page 2561 in our Bibles and say, what should I do in order in this given situation? Because that, the Bible may not say anything about that particular situation. But here's the thing. That's why we need discernment. And here's how you walk discerningly and discern what pleases the Lord is you get to know him so intimately. You get to know his character and his heart so intimately that you know what kind of things please him you know what he loves and delights in you know what kind of things grieve his heart and goes on to say in verse 11 take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret for when anything is exposed by light it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light therefore it says awake O sleeper arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you I would put it this way, sin is like mold. It grows in the dark and it is weakened by the light of day. Sin is like mold. In the book of Leviticus, actually, sin is referred to as a, or sorry, mold is referred to as a type, an image, a picture of sin. And like mold, sin grows in the dark. Sin grows, it gets stronger when it's kept in the dark, when it's kept in secret. When nobody knows about it, it will spread and it will multiply. For many people, sin just imprisons them. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, if you've ever had a situation in your life where you felt trapped, you felt enslaved, like this thing that you're doing you almost hate doing it but it's so powerful that you feel like you can't get out from under it and you're trapped well here's what this is saying here's the way to, to take away that power that that thing might have over your life that addiction or whatever it might be here's what you do bring it out into the light bring it into the light expose it to the light of day expose the deeds of darkness to the light of day and they lose their power and their hold over you that's the main reason i'll tell you this this is one of the main reasons why we need community as a church we talk about being a community church that's why i've written you know about how i'd love to see everybody plugged in to community in the church that your involvement in this church wouldn't just be on Sundays, but get involved in community groups and men's groups, women's groups, prayer groups. Get involved in a way that you can be with other people. And here's why. Because we need community and we need that accountability that comes with community. We as Christians, we need community, right? If you're not talking to someone about the struggles that you face or the temptations that you're struggling with, you are setting yourself up to for a disaster. You're setting yourself up to be shipwrecked, to be ruined, 
right? We need community. We need this fellowship with each other so we can spur each other on to the pursuit of God. So we can be honest and real with each other about the things that we're struggling with because by doing so, what happens is we bring the deeds of darkness into the light of day and they lose the power and the hold that they have over us. And we can receive prayer and support from, and we can receive accountability when we're in community. Why? Here's why. So we can overcome. So we cannot be trapped. So we cannot be stuck. So we can walk in victory and walk in light. So number three, here's our third point. I'll wrap this all up at the end. Walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom, verse 15. We read this. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You know what? You've only got one life. I've only got one life, and I don't want to waste it. I want my life to be significant. I want it to have purpose and meaning, and I want to use it for God's glory. I want to not let my schedule be so filled up with stuff that I lose sight of the things which God says need to be a priority, right? I need to stay focused on eternity. I need to stay focused on the mission of God that I'm called to be part of, that you're called to be part of. Make the best use of your time. That's what it's saying here. Walk wisely. You've only got one life. Don't waste it. Use it for the things that the Lord says should be priorities. Verse 18. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here's the thing. The result of living out the life of God, the result of living this life, the result of walking in a way that you're observing and imitating God actively and walking the way he walks, here's what the result will be. The end result will be overwhelming, abounding joy. Overwhelming, abounding joy. When you're filled with the Spirit of God, you actually get the thing which people are trying to get who drink excessively, right? Who get drunk, right? When you're filled with the Spirit of God, you actually get the thing that people are trying to get by getting drunk. Because here's the thing. What are people doing when they're getting drunk? Here's the thing. Why are they doing it? What's at the root of that? Here's a, here's a few reasons. They do it to have a good time. They do it to take the edge off. They do it to check out on life for a little bit, you know, because life's, life's hard, you know? People who drink, that's, that's part of the reasons they do it, just to have a good time, to check out a little bit, and, uh, and right, to take the edge off. These are some reasons why people get drunk. But think about this. Do you know why alcohol makes people happy, like physiologically? The reason it makes you happy is because it's a depressant, right? But, but it doesn't mean that it makes you depressed because it's depressant. What a depressant does is that it actually depresses parts of your brain, right? It makes them you know, kind of fuzzy. So here's the, here's the point, that that's actually why alcohol makes some people happy, because it actually makes them less aware of reality, right? It makes them feel happy, it makes them feel relaxed, because they're temporarily less aware of their problems and their surroundings and things like that. But the Holy Spirit does the complete opposite, but he actually gives you the thing that you're looking for. 
right? The Holy Spirit does the opposite. Rather than numbing you, you know what the Holy Spirit does? He makes you more aware, more aware of who God is. Not of your circumstances, but of who God is and what Jesus Christ has done for you. Jesus said in John chapter 16 that the work of the Holy Spirit will be to glorify him and take what is his and declare it to us. So what that means is that part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to remind us of who God is. The Holy Spirit reminds us of what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done for us. He reminds us of the power and the promises of God. The Holy Spirit takes that which, uh, which we know about God up here in our minds and he makes it real to our hearts. He blows it up, magnifies it in our hearts so that we can have hope in the midst of our problems because we know who God is and we know how much he loves us. I would encourage any of you here, if you're going through a hard time right now, um, I would encourage anybody actually, if you're going through a hard time, whether it's heartache, disappointment, a loss, if you're feeling sick or sad or stuck, I gotta tell you, the last thing you should be doing is drinking alcohol, okay? Um, that's what a lot of people do to cope with their pain or their hardships, but, but of course, you know this, it doesn't fix anything. If anything, it compounds problems, and it, it'll oftentimes give you new problems on top of the problems that you already have. You know, g getting drunk, drinking alcohol, it's like pushing a pause button on your life, right? A lot of people in my extended family who, uh, you know, are alcoholics and, uh, you know, addicted to drugs, and this is kind of what I see in their life. It's almost like pushing a pause button, right? But the thing is that even though you pushed a pause button on your life, uh, the world keeps turning, right? Things keep happening, life goes on, but you're just paused, right? You're not going anywhere, you're not moving, you're not growing, and, and nothing gets resolved when your life is on pause. Usually new problems get created, or you forget to do things because you're checked out, and uh, because every evening you're drinking, right? Here's the thing, alcohol is not the answer. In fact, like I said, my counsel to anyone going through difficulty is to not even drink a drop of alcohol. And that's not because I think that it's wrong to drink a drop of alcohol. It's not because I think it's a sin to drink at all. It, I'm just saying, we're talking here about walking wisely, and I'm saying that is not wise, and it's not helpful. What you really need is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, that, that's what you really need. If you're struggling, if you're going through difficulty, if you're depressed, if you're down, if you're stuck, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with the fountain of life, the fountain of joy, the fountain of hope, the fountain of encouragement in the center of your life, just having it fill you up, right? Being filled with the Spirit of God, you know what it does? Rather than deaden your senses, it makes you more aware of who God is and what Jesus has done for you. The great hope that you have in him, no matter what circumstance you're facing in life. And when that's the case, you just, you have this fountain of life, this fountain of joy, fountain of hope, fountain of peace, fountain of encouragement in the center of your life. And when you do that, your heart becomes full. So full that it overflows. You know, I would say this. I think that a lot of times the mistakes that we make, the dumb moves that we make, the problems that we do, right, the sins we go after, they're a result of our heart, of, of not just our hearts. It's a result of us being so empty, right? And as empty, a result of emptiness is we do these things that are just off the wall. But here's what it's saying. What you need is to be filled. 
You need to be filled with the Spirit of God. And when you are dominated by the Holy Spirit, here's how it overflows in your life. This is what we read in the text. It overflows in gratitude towards God. It overflows in service to other people. And it overflows in songs in your heart, right? You walk around with music in your heart. You walk around making music to God and it comes from your heart. So I want to encourage you this week. Consider how you can imitate God as you walk through life. Imitate him. Consider how you can love people like Jesus loves. Consider how you can walk in light as he is in the light and consider how you might walk wisely. Being filled with the Spirit under the influence of the Holy Spirit that your heart might be full, that you might be aware and walk in the awareness of who God is and how much he loves you and all that he has promised for you. Right now what we're going to do so we're going to stand and we're going to pray. And, and we're going to take some time to sing songs to the Lord. It says here that you make melody in your heart to God. To sing hymns and songs and spiritual songs to the Lord because of who he is and what he has done for us. Because he has made you his own. Because he has adopted you. Because he has given you a new name and a new identity and a new future. He's given you hope, right? He doesn't just see you for who you are. He sees you for who it is that he's making you to be, who it is that you can become, who it is that he wants you to be in Christ. And so right now what we're going to do is, as we sing these songs together, the communion table's right here, and I'd encourage you to make your way to the communion table to remember what Jesus Christ has done for you in making, him, making you his. His death on the cross, his body broken for you, his blood shed for you so that your sins might be forgiven, so that you might have new life. You know, I, I believe this is one of the reasons why we switch up our sets sometimes because worship needs to be a response, right? A life of worship is a response, but also calling out and praising the Lord. That's a response. It's a response to who he is and what he has done. So I encourage you over the course of these next few songs, as you take communion, just pour out your heart to the Lord. Worship him because he is good. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. Lord, thank you for who you are in our lives. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you, Lord, that you have adopted us, that you have made us your own. Lord, that in you we are rich, we overflow. Thank you that in you we have a new identity, a new name, a new direction, a new hope, a new future. And Lord, I pray, Lord, may we be filled with the thoughts and the work of the Holy Spirit that we might be reminded of who you are, that we might have a wellspring of life within us and joy in you. And Lord, that it might overflow in praise to you, gratitude and service. But Lord, right now our focus is on praising you for what you've done. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you for your body broken for us, your blood shed for us, that we might become new, that we might become your children.